The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows is brought to you by the StarQuest Podcast Network and is made possible by our many generous supporters. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash donate. You're listening to The Secrets of Jurassic Park. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Jurassic Park, where we're going to discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings of this awesome dinosaur movie from the 90s. And joining me today on the panel are Father Michael Gossett. Hi, Father Michael. Great. And Thomas Sanherho. You got it. (laughs) (laughs) I got it this time. And so, you know, actually, I got to remember, like last time we were together, I don't think I actually introduced like who you are or where you're from. Uh, Father, tell us just a little about yourself, uh, you know, who you are, where you're from, just a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm a, a priest of the Diocese of Steubenville, Ohio. I'm a, I'm in a parish, I'm in a high school, and I'm the vocation director. Awesome. And Thomas? where uh, I am a Catholic father of seven uh, from the Tampa area, and I also am a teacher at our local uh, parish school. Awesome. Okay, great. So, uh, and that just helps people to get to, to get to know you a little bit, to, you know, who, who are these guys are talking about these things. But before we get into talking about the movie, I want to quickly uh, just promote another podcast that we just launched called The uh, Secrets of Star Trek. And it's a lot of fun. If you've heard any of our other secrets of like Doctor Who, you know what to expect. Um, it's three super nerdy Trekkies. And we love Star Trek. And what do Star Trek fans love to do? But get together and talk about Star Trek. So um, the secret to Star Trek is uh, it's me, uh, Jimmy Aiken, and Father Corey Stika. Uh, each week, we have an episode where we talk about uh, something having to do with Star Trek. And we're kind of going th- almost systematically through Trek. So one week will be an uh, episode from the original series. The next week from Next Gen. Uh, w- another week will be from one of the movies. And then we'll kind of branch off at times, and we, we got plans to talk about uh, fan conventions because I've I've been to fan con- Star Trek fan conventions, and they're a lot of fun. <laughs> awesome. uh, we'll talk about Galaxy Quest, which is in a uh, satirical homage to Star Trek, and that sort of thing. It's going to be a lot of fun, so I hope you will subscribe if you go to sqpn.com/slash/trek or search for Secrets of Star Trek on any of the the podcast aggregators out there. It's in all of them. So uh, that said. Let's get to this. So, uh, Jurassic Park, which has become a mega uh, franchise for Universal Pictures, um, started in 1993, but with this film directed by Steven Spielberg, based on a book written by Michael Crichton. And uh, it's it, just to kind of we're talking about Jurassic Park because Jurassic World Kingdom, something or other. Jurassic World 2 came out this past summer. We want to talk about that eventually, uh, but we thought we'd kind of go back a little bit first and and talk about where it came from. And it came from this great movie. Uh, like I said, it came out in 1993 and it had a 3D re-release on the for the 20th anniversary in 2013. So it's you know it's been about out for 25 years. So uh, wow. <laughs> did guys, I don't know if you're as old as I am. I saw this uh, as, you know, uh, as a college student when it came out. Uh, did you guys see this in theaters when it came out? Thomas? I did see it in theaters when it came out. I was in high school. Okay. And um, I remember I went to, to see it uh, when we were overseas. We were, well, overseas, I say. We were in Puerto Rico. 
And so it came out a little bit later, but we were there. And uh, I was sitting by my mom, who is not very good with scary movies. But she didn't really know <laughs> what she was in for. And uh, there was a distinct part of the movie where she put her hand on my knee and squoze so hard that she left a bruise. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Father Michael? Yeah, I, so I was in fifth grade when I saw this. <laughs> and uh, it is, uh, I love this movie so much. It's one of, it's probably my earliest going to the theater to see a movie that I really wanted to see, Memories. And uh, yeah, so I remember being scared, but being obsessed with it for a long time. You know, that reminds me when I, I remember, I distinctly remember this when I, when I first saw this, there was a, a like a dad or, or maybe it's an uncle or somebody and, a, and about an eight-year-old boy sitting behind me. And at that scene where uh, the T-Rex chomps the lawyer, uh, which uh, the, that's everyone's favorite scene, where the lawyer gets eaten by the dinosaur, um, I I hear him le- sort of lean over to the boy and, and whisper loudly enough for me to hear, now you know what Barney's really like. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and wow. I'm thinking to myself, you just bought yourself a lifetime of therapy. <laughs> Yeah, my goodness. <laughs> I just I thought that was the funniest thing at the time. I almost burst out laughing. So um, th- let's talk a little bit about the, the background of the movie, like where it came from. Like we talk about it came from Michael Crichton book. But I, as I was doing the research, I found out that this was actually originally Crichton wrote a screenplay treatment, then the book, and then and he, then he sold the rights to the book and then was hired to write the, the first screenplay for this so this is really like right out of Crichton's mind or like right almost you know from Crichton to the screen in many ways but the book and the and the the movie differ in a number of ways and for me the most significant one is is the character of John Hammond uh now have you either of you read the book I did, yeah okay so in the book Hammond it comes across as he's 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 really a villain. I mean, he's uh, greedy and dismissive and, and condescending and, and arrogant. I mean, all the things you'd expect from someone who, you know, defies the laws of nature and, you know, and goes forward like this. Whereas in the film, John Hammond is a kindly elderly grandpa who's almost clueless in his in his. um uh uh, the, the way that he's I'm trying to think idealistic in a sense. Yeah. He's, he's almost childlike in the way that he, he's like, Oh, I brought the dinosaurs back and it's so awesome. <laughs> right. Uh, and, yeah. and that's to me, that's, that's one of the defining characteristics of this movie where oh, none of the humans in this really come across as a bad guy, except for, except for maybe Nedry, who just is sort of a bumbler. He, he's, he's not, He's not a villain per se. He's just sort of, a, a, you know, a, the dummy who who whose mistake causes things to happen, um, and, and so it's. I found that kind of an interesting way for Spielberg to approach this. What do you think of that? Yeah, there's no real villains in this movie. Even I mean, the dinosaurs are doing what dinosaurs do, right? And, uh, so you can't blame them for that. But yeah, like you said, even the people any mistakes that are there are just like very human mistakes, whether it's greed and even John Hammond, there's certainly a lot of, uh, I guess you could say like hubris of, of doing and daring to do what he does, but he does it really benevolently and he, he wants to share this great thing. So yeah, I, I really enjoy that. Uh, it's not really like 
humans versus monsters. It's humans versus just the the mess that they made and having to escape from that. Right. Yeah, I, I wonder how much of it was just the actor that they chose to play the part, too, because there's a lot of really dark spots that could have gone very bad if you watch really closely uh, the the spots with John Hammond. And it's uh, it's just the difference in the actor having that childlike uh, look at the dinosaurs versus having the dollar signs in his eyes when he sees people amazed by them. Right. And, um, you know, it, it could have gone a very different way depending on who they had play that part. Even that 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 scene where he credit where Nedry is sort of needling him for more money again and and he sort of he, he sort of he, he he really kind of turns into the boss like look i'm not giving you any right. more money like that could come across as just the greedy uh jerk but even then because he, he he's built up this capital of the kindly grandpa you're like oh nedry you're bad for making grandpa angry you're like it's just right. sort, of, sort of this <laughs> exactly. this 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 yeah. moment um so uh so that was so that was the book and then Steven Spielberg came into this uh, at one point. Uh, they had kind of shopped around to different uh, studios and Universal picked it up for Spielberg to make the movie. And uh, he was convinced, I find this interesting, he was convinced to make it by Universal as a condition for him then after making Schindler's List, which is a movie that was very personal uh, to, to uh, Steven Spielberg and one of the greatest movies of all time in my opinion um and so it, I, I thought it was very interesting that he like this was sort of that condition uh to make that uh which is a uh, in, just an interesting character moment for spielberg um yeah i i like i like the fact that um I, I, because spielberg you always you always think about uh yeah he makes big movies but he also has a message like he always tries to tie a message into the bottom of the movie and um and this one's really no different. And, you know, there's there's so many things you can walk away from this movie with. But like you guys were pointing out with the, the lack of a real villain. And then on top of that, the 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 life, the message of life and how yeah. life is going to find a way and uh, and how meaningful life is, even if we were the ones that brought it back. Right. It's there now and it needs to be respected for what it is. And, and that message just trails through the whole movie. And it's very subtle, but really, really well done. And in fact, I think the, the it, to take it a step further, it's also, you know, life is important and hold on to the things that are really important in life. You know, like the right. what's, what's real. you know, at, at one point, Ellie, you know, kind of has to almost shake a Hammond and say, your children are your grandchildren are out there. You know, the people we love are out there. That's what's important right now. And and it, it's it's a revelatory moment for him. I think to to kind of oh right right that's my priority is my grandchildren the people I love and and from that point on he's almost a different guy in in his aim he's no longer trying to save the park uh he's trying to save the people uh, right. and and I think that's that's a real Spielbergian moment even the subplot of uh so Dr Grant goes from kind of like not being interested in children he's he uh kind of horrifies that kid with that story at the <laughs> beginning. Lo love <laughs> that. Wonderful. But by the end, and on the helicopter off the park, he's got uh, Lex and Tim cuddled up against him. He took care of them. He was a father to them. Their, their real father's not there. Uh, and he took care of them all through that uh, terrible situation. So 
I think that's like a kind of an affirmation of that message that uh, he went from just being kind of caring about something that was dead and and history into investing himself into these living people. And that's, that's right. so it happens for him, too. You know, it's 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 a hallmark of Spielberg that the way he focuses on fatherhood, children and their fathers, like whether it's E.T., um, who uh, the Elliot doesn't have a father, you know, and 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 sort of uh, creates a bond with E.T., uh, a, a relationship like that. Um, but but, you know, even in his other movies, there's, there's this there's often this fatherhood message, this children or just children and the adults who love them. That's that message. Mm-hmm. And that really comes across here. And, and it's it's different from the book in a, in a way. I mean, there was whereas in the book, I, th- I think Grant, he actually had an affinity for children. And this Spielberg kind of changed a little bit just to let that affinity grow. Um, I, I have to say, you mentioned that that scene with the kid at the beginning where he kind of explains, <laughs> you know, what a velociraptor <laughs> would do to you. I just love that. And and it kind of it's it's actually several points in this movie where they have this masterful storytelling where they they do have all this exposition about necessary details like the book Jurassic Park is is like three inches thick because it's mm-hmm. all exposition it's all this science and explanation of what's going on you know what's going on with these dinosaurs and yet in the in the movie they they condense it all into these little vignettes whether it's that explanation of of what a velociraptor will do to you or it's the cartoon in the ride that explains yeah. how they got the the, d- d- the dino DNA, DNA. <laughs> yeah, exactly, which is great. Very very Walt Disney like. I, I come back to that uh, to that that Walt Disney like thing. So I got to say, like, so he does a great job of of giving us tons of exposition without slowing down the movie. This is a this movie goes at a breakneck pace. It's it's 127 minutes, but it goes by like 30. Uh, yeah, it, it never stops. It really doesn't. Yeah, that's that's another hallmark of of uh, of Spielberg. It's, it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark. It just goes by like that. Like it's just you know nonstop from the beginning. So uh, let's talk a little about the dinosaurs themselves. Um, this is a groundbreaking movie. It you know at first they were they were going to go with stop motion because that was the way you you did this sort of uh, animation, just so, sort of like the. Um, uh, Harry, oh, what's his name? Oh, I lost the the guy who did um, the the old uh, uh, what was the one with the, the Greek move the with the skeletons. Jason, Jason, Jason and the Argonauts. Jason the Argonauts. Just yeah. like you know, kind of that stop motion where they look very obviously like models. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there was a there was gonna be they they were gonna do that until um, th- they realized it wouldn't be fluid enough. It wouldn't look real, and they went with CGI, which was a huge risk was not quite there yet you know in in other movies it was one of the first scale use large scale uses of it um and where they mixed live action with graphics people graphics they did have some full scale animatronics like the T-Rex uh when they were in next to the T-Rex paddock with the uh electric uh trucks that they were riding in um that that was animatronic um and it was it was so effective and in fact one of the things that makes this movie great is how real the dinosaurs were, especially the T-Rex and the Velociraptors. Yeah. And well, I think there was a, there was a, a lot of stuff that they did. Uh, and, and this is something I really miss a lot of in, in more modern movies because they're starting to rely too heavily on the CGI. Mm. And there were so many things that they did to build 
that tension without the dinosaur on the screen because they really had to invest. You know, we got we got 10 seconds of this dinosaur on screen. It needs to look good before it even gets there. And, right. uh, you know, like the little water cup with the drops where the, the T-Rex is coming Perfect. out. <laughs> you know, such a great uh, trick of just getting you to buy in and suspend the disbelief. And, you you know, you go back and watch it now and and the graphics still hold up pretty darn well. Yep. But they they're, they're starting to tell their age and you can start to see a difference in uh, because they had to use really dark lighting to hide some of the issues and and different things like that. And it helped with the mood of the movie. But, uh, you know, as as a person who does some computer graphics myself, I can watch these things and go, oh, OK, yeah, I see why they had to they had yeah. to have the, the rain and the T-Rex in the dark, because that hides a lot of stuff that you would other, otherwise have to deal with somehow. Right, that animation sequence at the the first time they see the dinosaurs, which is an iconic scene, by the way. I mean, it's mm-hmm. so it's it hits on your memory. But when you see that now, it looks very much like animation. Um, right. The, the later yeah. scenes, it got a little better, but but because that was during the day. But even when the T Rex was chasing the Gallimimus, and that was daytime. Wow, that was it was mm-hmm. like if you if you slow it down, you can kind of see how the tree is slightly out of, like, as it rocks. The tree they hide behind as the Gallimimus jump over it how it's slightly out of sync with them, but you know, it's not perfect, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's for the, especially for the time. Uh, but I see what you're saying. Like they had to hide a lot of the, uh, a lot of the strings, so to speak uh, in the right. dark and in the rain. And it really works. I mean, you compare this to something like the phantom menace uh, or something like that, mm-hmm. that this looks 10 times better than a totally CGI uh, year made years later. And I think just kind of that, uh, idea of hiding it and he it makes me think of jaws which is probably what he was going for is that you don't see the shark a whole lot but it feels really real and that t-rex feels really real uh by the way they deploy it yeah there's something to be said for the the when you don't have the ability to just do whatever you want like nowadays like you watch like a guardians of the galaxy for example like they can they can do anything in that like if (laughs) it seems like you know they can create anything and uh, as much as I, I, I actually really enjoy Guardians of the Galaxy, but it, they guess it's it just there's no, there isn't the same sort of of suspense and holding back. Like actually, to compare this to Ready Player One, a movie we talked about in this podcast a, a few uh, weeks ago, uh, also a Spielberg movie, because he didn't have the limitations of technology. In fact, he had some of the most advanced technology. Um, I don't think that movie was it was good, but it wasn't as blow you away because he didn't he he didn't have to hold back. He didn't have to work harder at the storytelling, I think. I think that's I think that's a part of it. Uh, yeah, that's definitely a huge part of it. And I, and I love it when um when directors and producers who who do have limitless uh ability can actually step back and say, "Okay, what do we really need to work in here?" Uh, to make these characters fit. And and I think that actually goes back to Guardians of the Galaxy. One of the things I really like about it is that the characters are so well-defined that even though you have Rocket on screen as often as he is, yeah, there's so much that's able to be conveyed because they've really built this this uh, rapscallion with a good heart, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and they've invested in it all the way along. And so it makes sense. And even when you see him snarl and smile at the same time, it it, it works because right. they've bought it with all the other exposition. And you for, and you forget that it's not a real, you know, talking raccoon standing there. It's right. true. Uh, yeah, the the noble rabbit is a uh, Thor, <laughs> Thor calls him. 
so talking about like how real these dinosaurs was, I would I want to just tell another little story. So uh, I was home uh, from college when this movie came out and uh, sleeping on the couch at home because my mom had you know turned my bedroom into uh, another room for something or other in the house. So I did I was sleeping on the couch at the time. And we came home from the movies and I settled down to sleep and I'm laying on the couch next to this big window, like this, the window at the front of the house. And as you know, when you're falling asleep, your mind does things to you. I'm falling asleep and all my mind is showing me is a giant T-Rex head lowering down in front of the window. Like not that it was hallucinating, <laughs> but it was imagining it. I'm like, oh, I am never getting to sleep tonight now. That's yeah. just, <laughs> it was just so real. It was such a, it's such a great experience uh, of that. Um, so this uh, movie had to cause a lot, a lot of nightmares <laughs> over the years. I have to think that yes, uh, it's T Rex chasing kids, and that's got to ring true for a lot of people. <laughs> that's yeah. right. That's right. Uh, and one of the things that, that I think we kind of meant, you know mentioned in passing was that Spielberg wanted the 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 dinosaurs to be animals, not monsters. And in fact, it comes up. Uh, Grant says at one point that they're you know they're the, to uh, Lex. They're not monsters. They're just animals doing what animals do. Um, and I think that's important. It's a, And it's the same sort of message, I think, as I think you mentioned, um, Jaws. Jaws is just a shark. I mean, it's it, although in, in one sense, Jaws was a shark that, on a mission. To, <laughs> it was a little bit more malevolent than that, a little more intelligent than sharks usually are. But but in the sense of it's it's an animal doing what an animal does because wild animals are wild. Um, and, I, and and there's some, it, I think there's something to that. It, it, it's, it makes it a better story than, uh, I think a little bit than some of the more recent Jurassic movies, which turn the dinosaurs into monsters, uh, on screen. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, I think that's kind of Ian Malcolm's, uh, argument and through the whole movie, the humans are just in the way. And especially you think of the last scene of this this first one that the T-Rex doesn't save them. Right. It just kind of happens to it's like, oh, more dinosaurs to eat. Uh, <laughs> right. and, and I think that's uh, just kind of the uh, it's part of the real message of the movie by unleashing all these creatures. Uh, they don't know what's going to happen and they're just kind of there. And I, I think you're right that a weakness of the newer movies, particularly I haven't seen the newest Jurassic World, but the first one really making some of those dinosaurs kind of characters, um, it falls flat because right. uh, they're not your friends. <laughs> they're, they're dinosaurs. And uh, and so in this one, that uh, it's kind of just humans having to deal with what nature does that makes the story. And we get to know the humans and uh, are fascinated by the dinosaurs, but uh, they don't need to be anything more than that because they're they're doing what they're meant to do. Right, right. Right. They're, they're not pets. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. No matter how cool they are, they're not pets. And, uh, and that's one of the really neat scenes, I think, in the movie is when uh, they've just escaped the T-Rex. They're sitting in the, the tree and the, the Brachiosaurus right there in front of them. <laughs> and uh, and Grant's trying to, to calm the kids down to, to convince them that everything's OK. And they finally start buying into it. And then right at that moment, it just sneezes on him. <laughs> yeah, right. And you know, so they've gotten comfortable with it. And then there it is. There's the, the gross nature part of it. <laughs> you know, one of the things that uh, the uh, paleontologists have kind of they, they, they have a love hate relationship with this movie. Like like a lot of people like archaeologists do with Indiana Jones and, you know, Navy pilots have with Top Gun, I suppose, which is 
at the same time that it ramps up interest in their field, it also conveys a lot of inaccuracies. Uh, and and part of it that is is that the movie dinosaurs are scientifically inaccurate. I mean, they're just and 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 not even just like because we've learned more in twenty years. At the time, they were inaccurate. The the in universe, the in movie explanation is well, that's because they they were genetically manipulating them, throwing in frog DNA. So they were they were they were designing these as much as anything. Um, but like one of the things that that's often pointed out is that real velociraptors are not six feet tall. They were, in fact, like one to two feet tall. Uh, they were, in fact, they were a lot like those um, chicken uh, dinosaurs in uh, Jurassic 2 uh, mm-hmm. from the beach at the beginning. They were much smaller. So less threatening, I guess. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Velociraptor is not scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, ex- but, but it's not far off either because you yeah. know, there are actual raptors that were that size. It's just when you call something a Utah Raptor, it's probably not as intimidating as this <laughs> very foreign term, you know, that. They yes. <laughs> yes. Utah Raptor makes you think of, you know, they're, they're uh, nice young dinosaurs coming to knock on your door, uh, wearing ties <laughs> and white shirts. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so that's the interesting little bit there. Uh, one of the things I, I kind of uh, found out uh, was who other, other actors that were considered for the roles. Um, Harrison Ford was considered for the role of Dr. Grant. And it's oh, how interesting. <laughs> it's very interesting to watch the movie and to insert Harrison Ford into that role, uh, and how the how he would have played it differently. Um, just to kind of see. I, I mean, it, it would have worked. I think. I mean, Harrison Ford would have worked. Um, another very interesting casting choice. They considered Jim Carrey for the character of Malcolm, Whoa. which would have been a disaster. I'm sorry, but Jim Carrey as Ian Malcolm would have been no, weird. There's no. No, just Jeff Goldblum. It had, it had to be <laughs> exactly. Jeff Goldblum. I mean, and then for replace that role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But but the the like uh, even the, in the early nineties, Jim Carrey was still in his kind of wacky phase too. And so right. I'm just not sure of that. Oh, um, and Robin Wright, who we know from House of Cards and other things, she was considered for the role of Ellie Sattler. Uh, although L- Laura Dern was always Spielberg's first choice. Um, Wayne Knight, who plays Nedry, who's also Newman from Seinfeld, um, he was he was cast by Spielberg right from the beginning based uh-huh. on his performance in Basic Instinct, uh, which is a movie I haven't uh, seen. But I can see that. Yeah, He saw Basic Instinct, Spielberg did, and stayed to the credits and wrote down his name. So, I mean, so that was so he was huh. chosen. And then the uh, the children, they, they they interviewed a lot of kids. The boy um, didn't get a role in. Um, the Peter Pan, a hook with Spielberg because he was too young. But um, uh, so he promised him a role in this. And then uh, the, the actress who played Lex, she got it on the basis that during her, her audition, they asked her to scream. And she screamed so loud that Spielberg's wife came running from the other room where she'd been sleeping. Um, and so she got the role based on the fact that she could wake up Spielberg's wife in the other <laughs> room with her scream. So, just some funny interesting little bits about about the uh, the casting so um mm-hmm. I, I think the kids were great uh the 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 boy who played tim he's gone on to some other things as a child actor he mm-hmm. he may well indeed be acting as an adult and i just don't recognize him grown up now but uh i remember seeing him in a few other things after that uh i don't know about the whether the girl went on but they both they both did very well for the roles that they were asked to play yeah, it's it's always interesting when you uh, I I know I, when you read a lot about the the trade you hear how horrible it is to to work with the children and um 
uh, even with the, the recent success of Stranger Things, uh, <laughs> everyone was really surprised that, uh, that the Duffer Brothers were willing to work with kids. And it was just because they didn't know that, that was that hard. And, uh, so, and it, I read an interview with them about that. And they were like, yeah, everybody kept asking us how, why we thought that was a good idea. And we just didn't know any better. So uh, I, I think sometimes you get lucky and I, it sometimes it can be a disaster. Uh, and it's got to be hard to pick, but they did a really good job with that role or with, with both of their roles. Mm. It looks but, like but I have to say, yeah. Tim is like invincible. Yes. In, in that movie like you watch how many times he should have died <laughs> in that movie and uh by the end you you see the haggard look on his face where he's just like trying to hold on to things you know when he says um that line well we're back in the car again yeah. uh, what it's he just the way he says it is so perfect it was such a great delivery of that line i gotta say uh that's what i think is great with those two is how funny they are there's a lot of humor through the movie, but they really pull it off. And that's not always the case with, with child actors. And I yeah. think it, it really adds to the movie. They just, their delivery of these great little one-liners like that is, is wonderful. So um, another uh, little bit of background for the movie is the storm scenes uh, were actually shot because uh, they, they were filming in Hawaii and they were hit by Hurricane Aniki uh, d- during filming. And they just they incorporated some of the storm, some of the hurricane into their into, into some of the shots, um, especially like the, uh, the the some of the establishing shots uh, that they have of, you know, the, the 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 waves crashing against the shore and that sort of stuff. Um, but they decided to to make it part of the film. Unfortunately, it also uh, prevented them from filming certain things like uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character had uh, um, was supposed to die on screen where he was chased down by the Raptors, but that had to be dropped because the set was destroyed by the storm and some other things like that. So that uh, changed the the movie in several ways, but uh, very interesting that, uh, that that was part of it. Um, so as for the, the movie itself, I felt like we, we talked a little bit about the theme of the movie and, and a couple of the themes of this is the, the idea of a man's hubris at playing God. I mean, that really seems to be, um, at the heart of this movie, this idea of um, you can't play God. Um, Malcolm kind of says, although he, he, I think he, he does bring up God at one point, but he doesn't, he, he kind of sometimes says nature or whatever. Uh, but he kind of says like, once things are selected for, for extinction, that's, that's their turn is over. You, you, you're not supposed to bring them back um, to bring them to, to kind of mess with life this way, with nature this way is is to invite disaster um what do you think i mean is is that is, is that really the, the a a theme at least for this movie yeah i the line i always think about is right from the beginning when uh they're first driving in and ellie picks a leaf well maybe that's not it well that happens and then later she points out there are poisonous plants in this building right you have them because they look good and i think <laughs> that that really captured it that um it's all about entertainment and that's not a bad aim, but just that, like you said, that hubris of, uh, of thinking, well, we, we can, we, like you said before, we did, we can do this. So we should. And, uh, right. that idea of everything is at our disposal and whether it's Hammond doing it simply for the sheer joy of having it or like the lawyer, uh, is it Gennaro um, yeah. who 
who <laughs> were going to make so much money off this. That's <laughs> a, his immediate reaction to seeing living dinosaurs. Um, and so that whatever the reason, it's dangerous. And, and I think that I like that neither of them is right. Even if, if Hammond is naive and idealistic about it, he's still wrong. It's still dangerous. Right. Right. I, I thought it was really, I was really struck, uh, like, you know, going back through and looking at it now, uh, it's, it's a Frankenstein tale with, uh, you know, just a very modern twist to it. And, and the monster that they make, just like Shelley's uh, Frankenstein monster, was not truly a monster. It was a living thing that had its own uh, motives and its own way of living. And it, you couldn't escape that no matter how horrible the thing was. And, and that's a beautiful thing that comes through in the whole movie. And when you really sit down and watch it and look at all the pieces that they put together, it's, it's such a good retelling of that tale. Yeah, you know, there's there's this um, that's actually really good. That's, it is a Frankenstein movie because I hadn't thought of that before like that. But it is really that's a it's a story. It's that old story of of, uh, you know, like there's born out of the, a post enlightenment uh, worldview. I'm kind of digging deep into my college philosophy classes here, but it's really, really kind of born out of that that warning, uh, you know, after during the enlightenment that we when man thought, OK, we've we've killed or as as. Um, Malcolm says at one point, God creates dinosaurs, God destroys di dinosaurs, God creates man, man destroys God, man uh -huh. recreates dinosaurs. And and then the next line is, dinosaurs kill man. I mean, that's really uh -huh. kind of the, right. the the end result of that. And it's it's sort of this is this is the lesson that, you know, man's when man thinks he can replace God, only only disaster can result. Uh, and that that's sort of what's happening here. Um, there's also a little bit of the idea of a world passing away um, so that, you know, dinosaurs went extinct. Paleontologists are going extinct. You know, that whole, uh, uh, you, we're out of a job and don't you mean extinct, which, which is actually, um, there was a real exchange between Spielberg and the head of the stop motion animation after they saw the CGI dinosaurs, by the way. So <laughs> the, the, the <laughs> Spielberg said to the, the animator, it looks like you're out of a job. And he said, in fact, don't you mean extinct? But uh, but there's that idea of of a the, in fact it's a, it's it's a a another through line from a lot of Spielberg's movies of a world passing away, um, and 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 what's important? What are we losing? Uh, it, with progress, I, I think that's a I think that's a, a big part of of what he's trying to say. Yeah, and, and I like that. Um... You know, as as high tech as everything is in that movie, because you go back and watch it now, and I think the nineteen thirty or the nineteen nineties really shows. You know, nineteen ninety three really comes through in this movie. <laughs> yes, uh, the jeeps and uh, all, all the different things that that you're watching in it. Uh, it, it really, you, you see this kind of moving into the future and not really being sure of what we're getting into. And and if, uh, for anybody who's ever done any computer programming, uh, Nedry's character is just uh, a classic. <laughs> like everybody thinks this is the way computers work and that's not how they work. You know, this right. is just such a ridiculous thing. Or when, uh, when uh, they go through and they hack their way back into the system and there's like this incredibly bizarre graphical user interface it's to show so the audience slow. what's going on. <laughs> it's such yeah. a slow, this is a Unix system. I know oh, this. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> not. Not a Unix system at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's like if you had to turn the, the, uh, the uh, security system on by that very slow cursor moving up the screen, it was so <laughs> yeah. like, oh yeah, yeah, that was funny. Um, you're right. I mean, it, it did, it was, it, it was, which, 
it was the advent of the computer age, uh, like the modern computer age. I mean, we'd had computers for a long time, but you know, the, a character like Grant saying, "I don't do computers." I mean, you just right. there is no one today who, like a paleontologist, any type of academic, who could just say, "I don't do computers." I mean, you, you'd <laughs> yeah. never get away with it today. Um, yeah, I think uh, Lex's joy. When they get in the Jeep, she's like an interactive CD-ROM. And I, just, I, I laughed out loud. Just the, that was a really impressive thing at that point in history, in 1993, to have a little computer screen in your Jeep. And looking back now, we're all carrying around much nicer computers in our pockets. But, yeah, just being right on that edge. Yeah, I mean, you, you, there, how many production cars out there right now just have a, a touchscreen interface on, in the car? I mean, it's just the thing. Um, yeah, the, one of the things that Hammond keeps saying, it's a line he keeps repeating, we've spared no expense. You know, that it's this idea that we're, we're going all out where we put all our cards on the table. We're, you know, we're holding nothing back. Um, the technology and the, and in fact, the, the park is so like from a, from a production design standpoint, the park was so well designed. You had the logo and you had the t-shirts and Every it it felt like a Disney World with dinosaurs walking around. I mean, it was the 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 production design was so good and so thorough uh, that it just felt like yes, this is a theme park about to open. Um, and that's one of the things that made Jurassic World a little satisfying was you actually got to see the park open. Uh, right. Of course, then the the attraction started eating the guests, but still, <laughs> you got, you got to see it, you know, and and the promise was there. 20 odd years earlier. Uh, I think it's also interesting, just like this is probably the fulfillment of what star Wars became that they made. A, I don't know how much money they made off of toys and merchandising, but this movie oh, is yeah. made for it. Cause they had the toys and the t-shirts in the movie already. <laughs> yes. Right? And, lunch uh, boxes and <laughs> everything. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, you, you actually mentioned uh, the, the Unix system. I was remembering the, all the old Macs that were running everything. I'm looking at them go like at the time they were the, the top of the line Macs. I'm like, Oh, I remember those. And Oh, I used to do that school paper on that one. <laughs> it's so funny how fast things have changed since then. And, um, and, and it's interesting to watch movies and how they deal with some of the technology we have today, because just having had a, a, a sat phone at the yep. time, they would have been fine. And exactly. They didn't have to go to some place to communicate with anybody. They could have picked up the sat phone and called out. <laughs> right. They wouldn't Done. have had to reboot the phone system. Well, right. one of the, one of the things I like to do is uh, when I'm watching movies that aren't current is you can always date movies from before 2008 and after 2008 by what, like, especially in the, if they're movies in the two thousands in this, in this century. Uh, by what kind of cell phone they have. Um, so if they have a flip phone or a you know what they call the feature phone, it's definitely 2007 to that maybe early 2008. If they have a, an iPhone or other smartphone, it's 2008 plus. It's like after that. Like it's just it, it's how it's very interesting how technology so quickly dates a movie these days when much less than it used to. Like you look at the Back to the Future movies, you know that it's the 80s. But it doesn't like it could have been early 80s, late 80s, early 90s. It wasn't so dated, you know, but very specifically, whereas uh, maybe it's just because we're living in the middle of it. But the technology can really date, you can not date as in make it old, but date as in give you a sense of when it was. Uh, so it's just very interesting. Um, 
I wanted to quickly before you know uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to talk about the music for one thing. Um, again, John Williams at his best. Jo- John Williams uh-huh. is that he's the Mozart of our time. He he just is he's an amazing genius, and the music, soaring trumpets, you know that that triumphal trumpet sound, the deep strings of the of the foreboding. I mean, he, the the emotion that his music gives to this movie, it's it's a it's it's one of the cast. It's it's one of the characters in the movie. Um, you know, do you have? I don't know if either of you have particular feelings about the music, uh, like I do. I, I, I can just think, yeah. I I I've actually been uh, playing some of the music that inspired John Williams to my kids lately, and so um, mm. like uh, Carl Orff's The Planets and. Uh, and I, I'll toy with them because I'll play a song and I'll ask, okay, who was it? <laughs> right. My kids are pretty good with composers. And so they've started to kind of pick up on the themes in them. And um, I was really stunned because the other day uh, we got into a discussion about something and then we started talking about uh, music for one movie. And my son said, that, that wasn't John Williams, dad. And I'm like, no, sure. That was surely that was John Williams. <laughs> and I think it was Pirates of the Caribbean. It might've been one of, one of those. And I, yeah. and I had said that it was, and he was like, no, 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 no. That was uh, someone else. And he started like telling me, you know, what the difference was between the two. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing yeah. how how much they can latch on to the composers like that of the movies that they watch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it was James Horner. In fact, you know, uh, we were talking recently on Secrets of uh, Star Trek uh, in a it's an upcoming episode. We haven't released it yet, but we were talking about Star Trek, the motion picture. And uh, when the Klingons first appear on screen, the new Klingon music that goes with them. Is right out of the planets, the wholesome planets. It's um, Mar- the the Mars theme, and it's you know, Mar- you know, martial, warlike, and these great composers like Williams and Horner and uh, Jerry Goldsmith, they they're inspired by the those who came before them. You know, I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, and it's and how they build on not only their own work that they've done before. Like you could find themes in this from Star Wars or from Indiana Jones. But they also build on the great work of people that preceded them, and and that's that is great that that you're teaching them to appreciate the composers of the music, uh, because I've mm-hmm. always loved soundtracks, so that's a huge thing for me, uh, to, to to do that. Um, so I'm trying to think of any other bits that we're going to talk about. Um, we talked about the the wonderful the impact tremors in the cup of water that's that 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 great foreboding that they that he creates. Um, the uh, I I was I I noticed for the first time the lawyer Gennaro just before he dies he's sitting on the toilet he's not people don't uh, people think he was using the toilet he was just he was hiding in there uh, so the, there's the little joke that he's he's like wearing a suit jacket and shorts I think is a really <laughs> subtle and hilarious yeah. thing <laughs> yes exactly but he's sitting there praying the hail mary before the before yeah. the uh, the T Rex chomps him. Uh, so hopefully he died in a state of grace uh, because mm-hmm. of it. <laughs> um, another iconic uh, moment is the objects in the mirror are closer than they appear with a yes, big T-Rex yes. head in it. Uh, I love that. That's a, another great scene. Uh, must drive faster. You know, like that, that mm-hmm. whole, just some, just so many great lines. Um, uh, I think I mentioned earlier how, you know, when my, you know, the, I always quote the clever girl, you know, the, the, so just so many good moments in this movie that we uh that we love uh that have, that stay with you um so is, is did we did i miss anything or did any uh 
notes that you guys had that you wanted to, to bring up before we were done? I always think about the opening scene of them uh, loading the raptors into that pen. Yeah. How darn scary it is. And I like it had an impact as on me as a 10 year old, certainly, yeah. but uh, even well, I watched it today and what a great opening because everybody would have known what they're getting into, but just this idea of these really smart predators. Right. Um, and you don't see them at all. And just how I love that scene. I think yep. it's such a great setting uh, to put you in the right mood to see the rest of the movie. Right. There, there will be a great line in the next, I think it's the next one. It might be the third one. Uh, the stay out of the high grass. Um, I, that's, that's when I always say to the kids when I need to mow the lawn, stay out of the high grass. <laughs> um, but the, the, uh, one of the things I want uh, that I thought was really good is how everyone forgets about the T Rex at the end when they're being chased by the Velociraptors, like through the visitor center. You, we've totally forgotten about the T Rex once they've gotten over that fence until it shows up. I mean, what a great use of that of the just kind of keeping it hidden, keeping it in your pocket until that to the end, and it comes out and it's that great scene of the the banner floating down the banner that says "When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth" and it roars. Uh, so really, really great. Um, another character that's going to show up, by the way, again, is uh, the character played by B.D. Wong, uh, Wu, the geneticist, who here, he's like this nice guy. He's just this friendly <laughs> scientist. Oh, he's not. No, no. Not, we'll, no, no. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out in, uh, in, uh, in Jurassic World what his real agenda <laughs> is. Yeah. So... Um, See, I just trying to think of any other uh, bits and pieces. Not really. Uh, I note that the visitor center control room has the strongest drop ceiling ever. Um, yes, that can hold yeah, the weight of. Yeah, be able to hold the weight of a raptor through there. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think that's it. Um, and and in the end, the lawyer and the insurance company were right. Uh, that's the message of the movie. That's really the message of the movie. The, <laughs> that's, the, that's what it all comes down to. Yes, as they're flying away with the helicopter and the pterodactyls are around them. It's, <laughs> The insurance company was right. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to your lawyer and the insurance company. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we see in Jurassic World, it it a park full of dinosaurs can never be safe. Uh, so anyway, sure. well, uh, I think that's I, I should uh, wrap up. I do want to read a little bit of feedback from a previous uh, secrets of uh, secrets of the Incredibles. Um, we had uh, a listener, Amy Flowers. She wanted to uh, send us a note. So we we had a uh, we talked about the Incredibles two. And uh, with uh, Maria Johnson and uh, Lisa Hendy and Maria was recording in the midst of Hurricane Gordon. Uh, so she, she gets the prize for a uh, real mm -hmm. trooper for podcasting. Uh, so but she, uh, Amy says to address Dom's query of the character of Win Dever, like why was he called Win Dever? What that meant She says not him, but his sister, Evelyn, the clues in her name. Evelyn Dever or Evil Endeavor is her oh. is what they're trying to say. So. Uh, and then she said it, it was a fun po podcast and made me want to watch this wonderful movie all over again. People have commented that Bob, uh, Mr. Incredible, his his less than immediate enthusiasm for Helen, Elastigirl's new job, makes him a bad husband. But I totally disagree. He has a human reaction and rises above that selfish first reaction to be supportive and happy for her. It makes him a more complex, interesting character. And I just wanted to bring that point up again. Thanks for a great show. I'm glad Maria is OK after the hurricane. And she adds, I agree. Edna Mode is the best. Everybody loves Edna. She is the best. <laughs> Thank you, Amy, for that. <laughs> I haven't seen that one yet. I'll have to watch that. Oh, those are good. It's, it's good. good. It's good. It's it's uh 
it's one of those cases of the sequel, not quite the the first one because the first one was new and fresh and amazing, but the sequel is good and it's worth watching. So definitely. Great. Yeah. Um, so that's it from us folks. Um, tell us what you think of Jurassic park. What did you think of what we had to say about Jurassic park? Are we on the money? Are we off base? Let us know. So you could do that by going to sqpn.com, sqpn.com. I say it too fast, I know. sqpn.com slash secrets, or go to the StarQuest Facebook page. Just search for SQPN on Facebook and leave us some feedback or send us an email to secrets at sqpn.com. Um, we'll put uh, links in our show notes on the website. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast. If you're not subscribed, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and remember to write a review, like, comment, share. That helps us grow, reach a bigger audience, more people. It helps us uh, in our mission, which is to explore the intersection of faith and pop culture through podcasts. And so uh, by doing that, you're helping us do that more. So until next time, Thomas and Herho, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Jurassic Park. Thanks for having me. And Father Michael Gossett, thank you as well. It's a pleasure. I love this movie so much. <laughs> <laughs> and once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of movies and TV shows on StarQuest. And remember, clever girl.